where there were tensions, things might be reaching a breaking point, and where there were maybe structural inequities, we are seeing laid bare the impacts of not thinking through how the least, the last, and the lost are, are supported by you know what is now the most prosperous civilization in the history of mankind. So a lot of how I approach this as a, a practitioner of diversity, equity, and inclusion is really looking at how society is functioning, who is being captured and, and held and, and supported by the promise of the American dream in, in this Western context, uh, and who is not. Welcome to the Best Self-Managing Podcast. I'm David Hassel. And I'm Shane Metcalf. Me and David have been working together along with our co-founder, Nazar, and all the amazing other people that are part of 15.5 for the last seven years. And we are not the same people that we were seven years ago. One of the things we're a big stand for is like, how do we actually embrace the whole person and understand that can we support someone in thriving in their whole life? And if we do, then they're probably going to contribute more at work. Your mission is to attract the best talent, retain your high performers, and maximize everyone's potential. This episode of the Best Self-Management Podcast was recorded on the morning of May 27th, just two days after the tragic killing of George Floyd. At the time, Shane, Willie, and myself were having a conversation about race and diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, and practices that we can all take on to be better allies. At the time, I don't think any of us had a real conception of what we were about to experience. And now as we're releasing this after two weeks of protests and riots and demonstrations around the Black Lives Matter movement and the racial inequality in this country, so much seems to have changed. And I wanted to make it clear that we recorded this episode and we had this conversation without real context for what was about to transpire. We've asked Willie to come back on the show now for a second episode where we can really go deeper in light of current events I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Best Self-Management Podcast. I'm Shane Metcalf. And I'm David Hassel. We're really excited today to welcome a friend and a, a brilliant thinker, Willie Jackson, to the show. Welcome, Willie. Shane and David, I'm so honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Willie Jackson is a keynote speaker, consultant, and facilitator at ReadySet, who helps leaders and organizations advance vital conversations that unlock connections across differences. His belief in the transformational power of media to change narratives led him to found Abernathy, a magazine for black men backed by companies like MailChimp, Atlassian, and WeWork. Willie served as founding technical lead of Seth Godin's Alt-MBA program for high-performing individuals who want to level up and lead, and CTO of The Domino Project, an award-winning publishing company founded by business luminary Seth Godin and powered by Amazon.com. Willie is an avid houseplant aficionado and loves to spread the gospel of self-watering planters whenever possible. You know, Willie, it's actually funny in our email exchange, I'd, I'd missed a few emails and then I was like, oh, what's this link? And it went over to the self-watering plants and I'm like, what is going on here? <laughs> you blink once and you've missed it. Yeah, um, I'm sure you and Sydney, my, my EA who was helping schedule, had a lot to talk about. She's also an avid house planter. We have so much to talk about. I can't wait. I see uh, David has a Sansevieria in the background, snake plant. Do. Don't get me started. Do. Don't get me started. It's been one of actually one of the interesting things that, you know, we haven't been in our office in San Francisco the last couple of months, but we've been diligently going to water the plants. And I go in there and I like talk to them. I'm like, look, we aren't abandoning you. 
we've got you. We're getting through this. Enjoy the silence. It's a beautiful metaphor. I love that. So Willie, so, you know, I think we have an opportunity today to have a conversation around DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, that is both timeless in the sense that this is a conversation that was relevant before COVID and will be relevant after COVID, and that there are some intensifying aspects of current dynamics to this entire conversation. Can you just speak to a little bit around why is COVID making this conversation more important to have right now? It's a great question, Shane. I think of COVID as an accelerant and almost like uh, something that is creating additional pressure on friction points that already exist in society. So I'm mixing my metaphors here, but we're going to roll with it. Where there were tensions, things might be reaching a breaking point. And where there were maybe structural inequities, we are seeing laid bare the impacts of not thinking through how you know the, the least, the last, and the lost are, are supported by you know what is now the most prosperous you know civilization in the history of mankind. So you know, a, a lot of how I approach this as a, a practitioner of diversity, equity, and inclusion is really looking at how society is functioning, who is being captured and, and held and, and supported by the promise of the American dream in, in this Western context, uh, and who is not. So I would start there, and I'm, I'm currently in New York City, and so some of these disparities are particularly acute here. So you see health disparities, you see the challenges that you know the government has in getting, you know, checks to citizens. So there are structural aspects, there are personal aspects, and of course there are the interpersonal aspects, right? How are we relating to our work? Have we been economically disrupted? Are different categories of people disproportionately impacted by this economic downturn, et cetera? So there are a lot of ways that I see this and you know the, the challenges extend really in all directions. So I'm curious, when it comes to companies actually rolling out and starting to take this conversation more seriously, you know, I mean, I know when we started 15.5, we weren't, the first couple of years, we weren't as heavily engaged in the honest self-examination of what are our biases? How are we doing from a diversity perspective? I think we always oriented towards an inclusive culture, but that conversation has grown for us as a company. It's been a evolutionary journey for me. I, you know, I'm grateful that like work has actually increased my facility to have this conversation. Yeah, I mean that's such a point. Let's, I mean, let's linger here for a little bit. We live in a context where zip codes can reliably predict and map to life outcomes, and we are in fact the product of the people that we're surrounded with. So it doesn't surprise me to hear that this wasn't top of mind for you, because we live in a context where we are functionally segregated, right? We live around people that look like us. We go to school with people that generally map to our socioeconomic background. You know, we might have jobs that we are able to get through a family friend and through our connections. And so our networks look like us. And so our referral networks look like us. And the people that we want to start companies with and work with are people that we've happened to work and live alongside of. So a, a lot of the starting point for this conversation really involves taking a look at, say, who am I surrounded by? Does this map to the kind of world that I want to live in? And are there any gaps, right? So I, I love this as an entry point to the conversation because you didn't do anything wrong. Nobody did anything wrong. And I believe you, and you know, having gotten to know you, I believe 
believe you when you talk about how you've prioritized an inclusive culture, but there's a different lens that has to be brought to bear when you think about how are we representing the cities in which we live? How are we representing the societies that we want to see? And how are we bringing into our teams and organizations a diversity of perspectives, uh, a diversity of bodies and lived experiences, et cetera? So none of this stuff happens automatically and we actually have to agitate for it, right? Yeah, I think it's worth you know noting that you know Shane and I are, are very much students, right? And I, I feel like we're still fairly uh, you know new to to this conversation, and it probably only even picked up to the point where we started discussing it with any seriousness at one of our uh, leadership retreats a, a few years ago, and we said, "Wow, you know, this is something we haven't really explored." And to your point, it wasn't on our radar in the way that it probably would be otherwise. There had to be something outside of us that said, hey, we got to look at this. And hopefully there's a bunch of people listening to this podcast who this might be the moment they say, huh, I never thought about that. Maybe I need to do some, you know, educate myself. How do you get people to even have that moment so that we're, we're having this conversation at a broader level? Oh man, so many, so many great things there, David. Um, the first thing I would say is an honest assessment of what I am uniquely positioned to do as a large, straight black man in the space. And I, I mention these things because I have a highly visible role. Pre-pandemic, I, you know, was speaking a lot. I do a lot of conferences, a lot of uh, speaking engagements, workshops, and so forth. So I'm highly visible, and like I embody like a very powerful metaphor and paradox here. I'm the descendant of people who were enslaved. I'm the grandson of sharecroppers. I am the son of somebody who was born in 1944 and picked cotton in the Jim Crow South. But when I was 22, I bought a five-bedroom McMansion in the Atlanta suburbs, right? So like my bloodline, just two generations back, um, really does bring alive the American dream, right? And, and, and such incredible economic progress. And, and as we were kind of talking about uh, before we started recording, we still live in an age where we're seeing some disproportionate disparities to people that look like me. So I feel like by dint of how I've been socialized, the educational opportunities I've had, the exposure I had, et cetera, I have the unique ability to bridge these gaps and tell an authentic story from a place of my lived experience that invites people in. A lot of times these conversations feel radioactive because, well, there, there are a number of reasons. One, there's blind spots. And let's talk a little bit about the blind spots. If I'm wearing my social justice this activated house uh, hat and reacting to what you mentioned about um, essentially not having the same insight into some of these things, I could say, well, that doesn't surprise me because the society in which we're all living was designed to shield certain people, ethnicities, and identities from the harsh realities of, of these disparities, right? If I were to put on my, you know, my, my inclusive leadership hat, I would say, in that lies an opportunity to bridge the gap from a place that doesn't require people to sit in shame, to sit in guilt, uh, and to sit in a, a sense of responsibility, but rather an opportunity to say, okay, on the basis of what I don't know and what I'm realizing I don't know, what else might I not know? How can I get curious about this and how can I uh, build a bridge towards understanding and involve people in the process to where everybody's engaged in that project? So a lot of my work in having public conversations uh, about these topics involves like modeling what that invitation looks like. How can we get curious about this without a fear that we're going to stumble, misstep, say the wrong thing and be embarrassed, right? Because when we get into the realm of those below the line toxic emotions where a lot of people dwell, there's not a whole lot of empowerment. 
And frankly, not a lot of us have the tools, the skills, and the facility to pull ourselves out of those place, to name the emotion that we're feeling, and to deal with some of these multi-generational things that um, just kind of lurk in the shadow of our family histories. Super interesting. How do you, being the embodiment of that invitation, because these aren't conversations that are going to come naturally, especially for people that maybe have avoided these conversations for a long time and have been shamed, have been told that they're ignorant and racist and stupid for even maybe inquiring a little bit. And so I'd love to explore a little bit of what you've learned around being able to have these conversations without shaming people without, you know, basically holding people's face in the dirt. What I've learned is that everybody has a story, regardless of what they look like. I often do an exercise that's being expanded into a workshop called My Beautiful Story. And it's about seven writing prompts. You know, my name is blank and I'm a blank from blank. Something challenging I experience, you know, on and on and on. And what you'll reliably find, regardless of people's background, gender, sexual orientation, etc., cetera, uh, is that we've all gone through tremendous setbacks. We've all overcome so many things. So we live in a context where we feel and are practically divided along lines primarily of, of race, gender, and class, right? But when we bring forward the human elements of our lived experience, our story, what we've overcome, what we've lost, there's this through line that connects all of us. So there is an interesting conversation to have about race. There is an interesting conversation to have about difference and the way in which different people are reliably and disproportionately disadvantaged. But I don't think that's the most useful entry point to the conversation. I think as a facilitator and somebody who tries to create these containers for people to have safer entry points, it's important to ladder up to the differences that feel challenging by first agreeing on and reminding ourselves of all of the essential things that connect us. And when you start to get into the some of the deeper aspects of this, it's or even some of the more uh, temporal aspects of this, there's so much more that connects us than what divides us. And I've so deeply internalized this notion that we have more productive to discover around what we're connected around than what we're divided around, that it's like my North Star, right? So from that perspective, I feel much more comfortable broaching just about any topic, because I'm not offering you something that should burn when I offer it to you. I'm holding it with you, like we're implicated in this thing together. So I'm not starting from a place of fundamental difference or deficit. What I'm offering is a perspective on how we might learn together to get to a place that we both need to be. Really interesting. The starting at the place of we have so much in common. You know, I mean, I think of my own life story of growing up in a lower class Northern New Mexico, Taos, New Mexico community where our family actually had a lot of belonging because of our poverty. We were a white minority and there was a lot of intense violence and racism, but it was actually our poverty that created a lot of connection and bond with our Chicano and native neighbors. And, and so it's like, that thread of common connection and starting there. And it doesn't mean we negate our differences. Uh, oh, well, I'm going to pretend that you're not black and I'm not white. And we're just going to ignore that. But actually starting with the common ground. 
Yeah, it, it's so useful to highlight these elements that you're talking about and to take a, a global and historical perspective. So what I'm hearing and what's implicit in your story, Shane, is that you were proximate to a lot of indigenous communities, wisdom, tradition, ways of being, probably things that you've both consciously and unconsciously absorbed. And there's just so much there that nobody has to explain to you because you saw it, you lived it. And what I'm hearing also is that there was um, something of a level playing field with respect to class. It's a great equalizer in the context of your lived experience. You were all in that together. The, you know, the fact of your pigmentation did not give you a strategic advantage day over day when it came to your your economic situation. So, you know, in, in that way, I think it was a really it's a really powerful metaphor for the way in which a lot of these things don't actually matter. Like we have learned these differences in the way that we're supposed to behave differently around each other, largely because of media, uh, because of what we've been told, uh, and because of the way in which you know society has has shaken out. But those aren't actually the most important elements of our humanity. Yeah, I, I, I love the starting point of the what's the commonality? As I, I think ultimately, you know, one of the learnings for me in all this was just realizing the extent to which people are treated differently based on their gender or their ethnicity or their socioeconomic background. I only have my experience. Right. And, and as a white man walking through the world, I have maybe less, much less of that experience that I wouldn't even know that occurs for other people. And uh, I think the skill that I've had to lean into is really curiosity and empathy, right? Curiosity about what are the whole diversity, the whole tapestry of different experiences. And then how can I actually, you know, put myself in those shoes and get curious to learn even more. Uh, and I think that that's an important skill for any um, business leader, you know, in this conversation. One of the things, you know, Shane, as you said that, I recalled there was a moment when I had graduated from grammar school, it was in eighth grade, and uh, I had a choice to go to one of two high schools. Uh, one would have been kind of a step up or, you know, a step up in socioeconomic. It was, you know, all white Catholic prep school in Bergen County, New Jersey. Uh, the other was to go to another Jesuit high school down in Jersey City, New Jersey, when at the time in the mid 90s, it was a pretty rough neighborhood. And I chose the latter. And I was with a much wider diversity of a student base and different economic backgrounds. And I feel like that gave me a different perspective on life that many people who had been on, you know, had stayed on the path of just staying in whatever bubble they grew up in would have less of that experience of like there are differences. Uh, so I'm always curious about how do we how do we help people and other leaders lean into empathy? And I'm curious what you've learned in your work around that. Well, first, I, I really appreciate you sharing that story. And I think that speaks to the current moment um, that we're in. Right, right now, there are some people really critically interrogating what it means to have a meritocracy, to believe that the meritocracy uh, is serving us, et cetera. So some of what I'm hearing in the decision point that you had at this fork in the road is, you know, how do I want to be? Where do I want to be? And, and you know, maybe even what are the the trade-offs there, because we live in uh, hyper-competitive times where your schooling matters, your training matters. We are trained at a young age to get into the kind of schools that allow us to get into the kinds of schools that allow us to get into the kinds of organizations that are scanning our resumes really quickly for things that remind us of ourselves and things that serve as proxies for merit and things that serve as proxies for class. So like blind resumes are a fine idea, but if you have like 
crew club at the bottom, then you're probably not expecting Jakesha Jenkins to be your applicant, right? Like, because that's just not the stereotype there. That's not what typically maps to that signal there. So I think there's some very real and practical concerns here that aren't just at the level of what makes us different. There are things that we have culturally dear to us, culturally familiar to us that nobody chose necessarily. The things have been offered to us, but we could talk a lot more about that. But I I love this frame around curiosity and empathy. I think curiosity is bedrock for business leaders in particular starting down this journey. Get curious about the thing that you don't know. Another frame that I offer is if something makes you uncomfortable, um, regardless of your background and identity, get curious about the discomfort and see if it has something to offer you. Are you, for example, galled by the notion that uh, somebody would need something that you didn't get? Uh, Are you telling yourself a story that you work so hard for everything that you got and you deserve it and you are resentful of the idea that somebody would get something that they didn't have to work for in precisely the same way? Do you have blind spots that might change your perspective? And what is it that you might know? that could change your mind about these things, right? So if we start down this path of curiosity, I think it can give us some momentum as we build up to empathy, as we build up to arming ourselves with knowledge and data. And, you know, I'll pause after this, but something I really recommend for, for people business leaders in particular, is use literature and use media as a way of exploring a world that wasn't designed for you. So I think about books like June Ideas' books, um, you know, the, the Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. I think about uh, the Pixar movie uh, Coco and how beautifully and carefully and powerfully it represented a culture that is not germane to my my uh, my lived experience or upbringing, but it probably reminds Shane of some things that he saw growing up, etc. So you know, there are these beautiful entry points into worlds that weren't designed with us in mind that can give us insight, that can uh, spark curiosity, that can give us an appreciation for the poetry, for the language, for the cultural struggles, and for the grit that different people from different backgrounds bring to bear and can offer our organizations, teams, and society. Yeah, it's really interesting. There was a New York Times article a couple of years ago about how reading fiction increases empathy. Because what you're doing is you're literally neurologically switching into the first person perspective of somebody else. And then so if you actually expand the variety of fiction that you're reading, then of course you're, you're, that empathy muscle is just going to get stronger and stronger. 100%. Yeah, that maps and to the it's, research. it's so cool, right? Because it's like, like fiction is such an enjoyable experience. You get to get completely lost in somebody else's world. And meanwhile, what's happening is your brain is literally growing new connections because you're looking through a different human lens. So, so one of my questions, Willie, is telling our stories. Like even, you know, the little bit of my story that I just got to share is is so nourishing, right? It feels so good to tell our story of like, hey, look, I have a unique experience and to be heard and listened and seen in that. And so how do we create space for people to tell their human stories inside of companies? Yeah, um, if you go to WillieJackson.com and enter my con- no, um, I, th- I think one, one, of the, one of the best ways <laughs> sign um, up for my uh, nine ninety nine course. My, my and- right, right. Um, I think 
storytelling is such a powerful entree into the, you know the, the rich humanity that we all have to offer. And, I mean, what you said about the the fiction maps to a lot of the research that I mean. So one of the reasons that we invite people to speak from the I perspective instead of generalizing is because it activates mirror neurons, right? It's it's the same set of research that basically says you know when you own it, um, or, or I'll, I'll say it like this, and I think uh, I think BMW mentioned this in one of their commercials. When you're looking at a video of a car driving, it's like you're driving every car that exists, right? Like you are, like you're there. There's a part of your brain that is saying, "Okay, I'm driving now." So th- there's something where you're you're almost helpless to engage your empathy muscles there because you're put in a position that you know your, your brain is wired to uh, to put you in. I think the space to tell our stories is one of the most overlooked and high ROI activities in building empathy. I, I think the power of storytelling is something that you know as humans we are helpless but to to engage with, right? So you know, and a story, as you mentioned, like or as you modeled, doesn't have to be a TED talk. You don't have to tell somebody your life story over 20 minutes. You know, the the exercise I do when you go around person by person, it only takes about two minutes per person to share out. And I think there's something sacred and powerful and really, really special about asking somebody who they are and what they have to say and listening and paying attention, not using that as a way to get beyond the conversation, not just dusting off the relationship and saying, uh, how have you been? What's what's top of mind for you? But once you've gotten that out of the way, you know, tell me something that I don't know about you. When's the last time that you cried? What is something that people might not expect to know about you? Um, what is one thing I really need to know in order to really understand you? These are powerful shortcuts that unlock stories that we might not have a tendency to share, that our partners and our spouses might be tired of hearing, that our friends may or may not be aware of. But when we make the time in this space to ask somebody genuinely and listen to what they have to say, I think it can add some powerful richness and dimensionality to all of our relationships. So I think simply the act of getting curious. So you can do this in your one-on-ones. You can have every fourth one-on-one with your direct report. Ask them a new question that you really want to know. Are there any hobbies that you had before the age of 18 that you missed? If you had six months to travel the world, what are three places that you would go? Like you can, you know, guide this in in whatever way that you want. But the, the point is that there's no wrong answers. Get curious. Yeah. And you know, if you've listened to the podcast before, you've heard of us talk about our question Friday practice, which is something we do across the company like that. And I, I actually think it's one of the most wonderful ways to, to have people just get the humanity of each other. Uh, I want to double click or, or go back to the point where you said, you know, a lot of people, we have unconscious bias. We're scanning these resumes. We're looking for signals that might say, oh, this is kind of a person who has a certain stature that I want in my organization or someone who's like me. What's the consequence for a business owner, for a manager of just letting that unconscious bias lead and hiring those you know, homogenous teams? And then the second question related, I think, is understanding like what's the consequence of not everybody in your organization feeling the same sense of belonging? Because I want people to understand, like, these are important skills we're talking about, and everything you shared is so important, but how does this actually map to the business? Let's put a fine point on a couple of these definitions. So the first definition I will just underscore is like me bias, right? This is our tendency to be attracted towards people that look 
think or act like us. It's not good. It's not bad. It's, you know, we are social primates. That's how we're wired to behave. And that's what has caused us to proliferate as a species. You're like me, you're in group, you're part of my tribe. I am safe when I'm proximate to you. That's an important part of our humanity that we can't cast as negative or shameful. Uh, Something that layers on top of that is leniency bias. And this is our tendency to favor or give a pass to or uh, be more understanding of people that look, act, or think like us. Um, And I think the final thing that I might illustrate, and these are particularly relevant in the context of interviewing and onboarding. like They're they're relevant in all aspects of the employee uh, development life cycle, but in particular in interviewing, there's also the phenomenon of prove-it-again bias. And this disproportionate affects people that have a different social location or social identity, which is to say, if you're hiring managers for your engineering team are mostly or completely straight white men, they are much less likely to give a pass to feel close to, to feel connection points to um, queer women of color, just to use an example in, in the extreme. So it's not good. It's not bad. It's not evidence that anything needs to be changed necessarily, uh, but it's an opportunity to understand that there are some fundamental differences there that not all of us have been trained to bridge, right? There's just a difference. There's a difference in, in experience, in orientation, in the ways that we see the world, and frankly, the signals that we've sent ourselves. So let's spend a little bit of time here. If you're a tall, straight dominant group male and you come from an affluent family, by the time you get to your second or third job promotions, you're going to have internalized one set of experiences and signals from guidance counselors, mentors, and other people about the fact that you're a leader or the fact that you have natural abilities in particular ways, et cetera, et cetera. If you are a woman of color and you come from a low-income background, and you've had to work really hard to get yourself out of a situation that maybe was not advantageous to you, you're going to have internalized a completely different set of signals from by dint of your circumstance. Um, people might not have the tools to, to give you these things. Our media represents a certain archetype of, view, of beauty and tells you certain things about the products you should put on your skin and your body to assimilate into this you know Eurocentric standard of beauty, etc. And you have to fight a lot more for some of the fun fundamental things that somebody else who doesn't have those experience couldn't possibly guess. Like you can't look at somebody and guess what they've gone through. So I I wanted to spend a little time examining that gulf because there's so much there that's nobody's fault that we all have to deal with, right? So these fundamental reflexive habits that we're not even aware of are magnifying our differences when we're doing something that's so fundamentally awkward and uncomfortable, which is sitting across from somebody who has the power to say yes or no to something deeply, deeply impactful on your economic future. And then you have to work alongside these people. So it calls into question trust. Have you been harmed by somebody that looks like me? Are you afraid of somebody that looks like me? Are you mistrustful of somebody that looks like me? And how do you have that conversation during an onboarding meeting? Right? How do you have wow. the space to have these space? <laughs> yes. So like so like you have like you haven't even gotten your first direct deposit. You can't even log into the LMS yet. And you have all of these questions reinforced by a life time of internalizing experiences that you don't have space to discuss with anybody. So one of the reasons that I love doing the work that I do is because we're creating the actual spaces for people to tell their stories and get to know their colleagues in some ways for the very first time, regardless of whether you've been working together for a decade or a week. So the 
consequence of going back to your point, like what, what is the risk of not being aware of these biases? The risk is that you're going to miss out on the richness that somebody offers. So if somebody comes from challenging circumstances and they've had to learn how to budget money in a particular way or market themselves, if you will, in a particular way or rely on just never quitting or being resourceful, these are such powerful skills that can be mapped to product development, to discovering new markets. When Google uh, on the Google Maps product, and I'm, I'm putting on my engineering hat as well because I have a former life, we can talk about it. But when, when Google optimized the Google Maps product such that it was using smaller JavaScript files, they saw a huge uptick in usage in sub-Saharan Africa. And that's because with the weak internet connection there, many parts of Africa were able to use the product because it was loading, like it was finally loading for them in a way that was usable. So that wasn't even their goal. Like that wasn't even their goal, but they saw enormous product adoption in making the product more optimized, refined, and excellent. There are so many ways that people from different backgrounds and lived experiences, economic circumstances, ethnicities, et cetera, can add value to our organizations. But in practice, when we're not conscious of our biases, they serve as clubs for people that are like us. And we like to work with people that we like to work with. And there are arguments that say, I can go faster with somebody I went to school with, who I have a shared language with. And it, like you can make that argument, but don't equate that to lowering the bar or don't equate that to blaming the pipeline. No, the, the problem is we haven't made this a priority and we haven't brought the same problem solving skills to bear for bringing people into our organization instead of relying on existing networks. This takes work to diversify the perspective and the, and the risk is that we'll miss out on perspectives, miss out on global market opportunities and miss out on having our teams um, be comprised of people that represent the world that we want to live in, not just the world that we happen to have been born into. Well, I love the idea that by engineering your culture where people can actually share their story, what you're going to do is you're going to increase trust over time. So instead of it saying, hey, well, actually, yeah, I don't feel comfortable around you and I have all of the sedimentary collection as a human being of all of my traumas and my ancestors' traumas all packed on me. And rather than just saying, okay, well, that's just how it is, it's actually, no, that's actually bridge those gaps. That's increase the trust. That's get vulnerable. That's rediscover our humanity together. And there's a lot of work that goes along with that, right? So there's a resistance that exists for a lot of people. And let, let's take a, a straight white male in a position to say, okay, I'm taking the red pill, Shane. I'm going to go outside of my comfort zone and I'm going to try. And he'll turn to his colleague and say, teach me what I need to know. Um, so you immediately uh, you, you immediately have a, a challenge there, and I'll and I'll just briefly touch on why. There is um, yeah, we, we were having a great conversation before you joined earlier about this very thing of like please. And I might get the terminology wrong, but I was I was asking Shane is that you know there there is situations because you know first we we talked about there's a lot of people who just have complete ignorance of the topic. They're not even aware to it. And then you might be aware of it and you're like, oh, I should learn more. And like, just like you said, you might ask one of your colleagues. But then there's this concept of that, is it invisible labor or something? Emotional labor, that's exactly right. Emotional labor. So it's, it's uh, you know, I'm putting this on somebody else to say, you know, 
you're now have to, have to do all this work to kind of get me up to speed. And I actually did want to ask the question separately, you know, for the folks listening, where can we direct them to go do their own research, you know, to get up to speed? But that's a, a separate thing. But, you know, I'm curious where you were going with that, that comment, because, uh, you know, it's something that we're, we're wondering about as well. This is exactly it. So I'm, I'm of a couple minds right there. So this is something that has been identified and decried by people that really care about these topics. And there's a, um, a sensitivity around putting that burden on people. And, and if, if I, again, to use my social justice language uh, around this, it would be a dominant group put in person putting the burden of, you know, explaining your essential humanity to somebody who might see themselves as marginalized, right? So not only do they have to, you know, in some cases, you know, fight for their wellness and fight to be seen and fight to take up the space that they occupy and, and fight for all these things, they also also have to take on the burden of explaining to somebody the fact that all these things are true. And then if we put a little resistance on that and the person says, I don't really believe that, or is that really true? Or if it's treated dismissively, then there's a real imbalance um, that's exacerbated in somebody having perhaps made themselves vulnerable taken a risk and gone outside of their comfort zone. What's likely to be true here is this is not the first time a conversation like that has been has taken place for the marginalized person in that situation, right? And so this is of a piece with a pattern of conversations that reliably don't always go well. And so if this person ignores their instinct towards self-preservation and, you know, they're at work. What if it's their boss? What if they don't have the ability to just opt out and say, I don't want to talk about that or establish some boundaries or say, can we talk about this later? What if this is coming at a really, really bad time? You're stressed about your performance review. You've had a loss in the family. Your aunt uh, just got diagnosed with COVID uh, and you have some real life thing. And your your manager comes to one of Willie Jackson's ally skills workshops. And now he wants to talk about, you know, your lived experience. So like, tell me about it. And they're like, it's the wrong time. It's the right conversation at the wrong time. So there's just so much that surrounds these topics that's not obvious. So I would say there's never a wrong time to be curious, which is to say, um, one of the tools I offer people when they're broaching these topics is to get consent and to get buy-in. Would it be all right if I asked you a question about X? And you can send it along via email. You can send it along ahead of time. So you don't have to surprise somebody with this. So you might be well-intentioned. You might be coming from the right place. You might be prepared to have a wonderful conversation. And it may not be the right time for the other person. And so, you know, your work in that situation might be uh, to think about like how to thoughtfully offer that question in a way that's compassionate to the recipient. So we can even miss each other in getting ready to get ready to have the conversation, if that makes sense, because our differences are so exacerbated. And it's not just the race and gender and class and ethnicity stuff. Um, sometimes it's practical. Sometimes, you know, I need to use the restroom. I don't really want to talk about being black right now. It's great. Um, again, this is another one of those things that I think for, for many people, this, this in and of itself can be a big blind spot. I'm curious, you mentioned the ally skills uh, and you do this workshop. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, of course. I had the pleasure of co-creating an ally skills framework and training with my colleague, Dr. Kim Tran, about a year and uh, a half ago. It's far and away the most popular training at, at Ready, Set that, that we offer. And it's just been, it's been a real treat to put it together. One of the reasons I think it's so 
popular is because we make these ideas accessible. Some of the things that we cover are thinking about harm reduction and repairing harm. So just like you're talking about, we can all have blind spots. We all have blind spots and we can make a mess of things, even and especially when we're trying. You, know, you watch a movie that changes your perspective. Um, you know, So I used to run an online magazine for black men called Abernathy. And a really interesting segment of my readership was white folks that had adopted black children or had married a, a black person and then they suddenly have biracial children. And they're like, wait a minute, the calculus is actually different for this person's safety and well-being. So they were subscribing, you know, and, and you know, pick, picking up our, our signals as a way of saying, what is it that I need to learn? Because I am suddenly become hip to a blind spot here and I might have been making mistakes all this time, right? So that was my entry point into doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work for a living, this expanding this metaphor of inclusion through the publishing world. But what I'd say is um, I think a lot of us in our zeal to get started sometimes make some mistakes. Maybe we're moving too quickly. We don't use our word, you know, we don't use the right word. We feel embarrassed, et cetera. And then we feel like we've made a mess and then we get nervous and we continue to make more of a mess, right? So a lot of the skill that we teach is like how to slow down. Well, well, and, and Willie, I would say, you know, after that second mess, you're like, cool. I have learned to just retreat, to just completely ignore the conversation, not educate myself and certainly not take any more risks. hundred percent, hundred percent. There are strong disincentives to trying it again. If, you know, we're falling, we're dancing without a net, nobody catches us. We embarrass ourselves and then we don't have any place to go. Like, where do you go? It's like, I just, you know, like some people stumble over whether you can say black or African-American. It's not their fault, but you have, you know, like, and there's not like training around this stuff. So, you know, if we are so uncomfortable about the most essential building blocks of the conversation, how can we expect to broach a conversation that involves guilt and actual harm and, you know, people's very real feelings of being marginalized? And I mean, I hold, I'll share this here because it might be useful for your audience to hear. I hold space for a lot of black women in particular who are brutalized by white female managers. There is something that takes place between these two cohorts of people that is so devastating and uncomfortable. Sometimes people are conscious of it. Sometimes people aren't conscious. Who's going to tell this to Shane and David? Like who in your company, regardless of how brave they are, is going to come to you and say, look, every single white woman I've had as a manager has been really awful to me. I don't think it's my imagination because it's happened five times. This is not hyperbole for me. Like <laughs> I know dozens and dozens of these women. Like these are real things that go back to a time when America looked very different. Right. Um, so like, how can you have visibility into these things in starting a conversation? Or maybe if you do and you've absorbed a lot of these conversations by proxy and you're just, you know, vibrating with anxiety, how do you broach these topics from a place of humanity and feel like you're going to do okay? So, I mean, so a lot of the ally skills workshops involves how to recover when things go wrong, because we promise you, you're going to mess this up. You're going to mess this up. The question is, how will you bring your values to bear in the recovery piece? And how can you let your best parts shine through when you've made a mistake? How do you say, I'm sorry, and know that that's a complete sentence? Wow. All right, Willie, there's, there's a lot to go into there. I want to uh, change a little bit. So I, I asked some of our employees any of the questions they want us to ask you. For a listener, 
Willie came to our company retreat in January and led a couple hour workshop like he's been talking about. And it was really good. It really opened up the can of worms, had the the conversation come alive. And, you know, I mean, we can debrief on, on that a little bit, but it's like, you know, super good. Like there, there was some, some tension internally around it, which is good, right? We want that constructive conflict. All that to say, some people that you know and love have asked a couple of really good questions. I want to make sure we get in here. Julie asked, is asking people to bring their full selves to work ring true for folks that are underrepresented in the workplace? Since oh, typically I love this question. that results in having to endure a hostile work environment or a loss of a job. Really interesting. Like this whole concept of full self is also fascinating because I think it's actually bullshit to say, bring your full self to work because does that mean like bring your misogyny to work? Does it bring <laughs> mean bring your racism to work? You know, these, these parts of ourselves, the uh, maybe underdeveloped, immature parts of ourselves. So it's such, it's such a fascinating thread. And so yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts. On I this. think you nailed it, Shane. I think you nailed it. I think it's an ideal that feels good to say. Um, I, I don't think it's actually an invitation in practice if there are uh, very real and tangible structural barriers that prevent you from comfortably doing so. Um, th- the reality is that a lot of people that don't look like the mainstream, that look like the norm, a lot of people have to hide or what uh, Kenji Yoshino calls cover at work. And this, is, of course, is our, our tendency to modulate aspects of our outsider identity that don't conform to the mainstream. And so if I like you know, to paint my nails pink and I like to dye my hair blonde, I might choose not to do that if I work for a financial firm in New York City. I might not work for them in the first place um, because that's not what gets rewarded. I might, in fact, be ostracized by that. I might, in fact, not get past uh, my first interview, might get, not get past the phone screen or the Zoom screen, right? So I think the notion of inviting people to bring their whole self to work is dubious at best when you don't have everything going for you, you know, if you haven't hit the genetic lottery. And even if that is true for you, um, I, think it's, I think it's dubious. So, I mean, you, you nailed it, Shane. There's We don't actually want people to bring all of themselves to work. I think there's an invitation to bring more of ourselves to work, but I think the culture that leadership sets uh, invites a specificity around what values and aspects of that humanity we're inviting forward. So I think it's I think it's completely valid to say bring more of this and less of this. Yeah, bring your best self to work, and and it's interesting because even that right because but we also want to. Because people, I think, get really tripped up in thinking, oh, shit, well, that means I need to always be up and always be on and always be happy and always be positive. And we're like, no, 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 that's that's not what it is. It's actually like bringing your best self also means that granular feeling identification. It means being able to locate yourself above or below the line. It means it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be in distress as we are going through massive global transformation. I couldn't have said it better. Yeah. And it also doesn't mean come and be an asshole and behave in ways that diminish and have other people feel smaller. That's right. And I think it's, again, it's on leadership to model these things. And it's a tricky balance, right? If you're running a company, you're you're an officer of a company, you're responsible for large teams. Are you really comfortable saying, I need a mental health day because, you know, I'm actually, you know, bipolar and today is not a great day. 
um, you know, uh, a sibling or a cousin I haven't been in touch with for a while just got incarcerated. Like there are very real things that I think you can invite. And the challenge to walk there is balancing authenticity with this notion of being performatively vulnerable, right? And, and that doesn't always pass the sniff test. So if you're sharing things because, you know, you went to Burning Man, you you know, you just want to triple down on this, this notion of authenticity or our vulnerability in a way that's performative, I think it can undermine your efforts there. But I think if you can bring more of what your life is actually like and not just the varnished Instagram clips of it, um, I, I think that does engender trust and an invitation yeah. for people. It, it, it is interesting. Like, you know, as we've grown and people are, have less exposure to us as a company, there is a process of them being like, wait a minute, this question Friday thing and gratitude practices and managers asking me about what do I need to really be successful in this role? Like when's the other shoe going to drop? You know, Mm. like companies don't actually care about me. And so there's some deconditioning that we have to do to like, let people know actually we care about you as an individual. And yeah, you have value to us as an employee and as a performer here. And we expect, we have high expectations, but you also have inherent value because you're a human being. And it's so interesting, the cynicism and the skepticism that we're encountering as we try to scale this this experiment. It's amazing the negativity and the abuse that just the average employee has endured by the time they get to the you know their second or third job. So I think I think deconditioning uh, puts it well. I mean I I started my career with uh, as I say a tiny company called Accenture uh, in 2007. I very quickly you know saw that it was not going to be the game for me to play. I could play that game, but there's just so much that you expose yourself to. Um, and I, I've just taken a different course in life because there are a lot of things that I just don't want to leave to chance. We've got another one if you have uh, just a few more minutes. Um, of course. Yeah, great. So another another one of our employees asked, how do we set a baseline of equity within the, an organization as we work from home when the benefits of an office space can normally serve as that given baseline for access to equal resources? Oh, my goodness. Um, let's start by distinguishing between equity and equality. Um, Equality is the notion of fairness. Equity takes into account the fact that historically the playing field has not been level for all people and therefore the resources that might we might get could look different. These are very, very different concepts. Salesforce has built, you know, 100 million brand on the notion of uh, of equality, but it's not the same thing as equity. Um, Equity is a much tougher sell and that may or may not be the thing that you're ready for. I encourage people to really get functional and conversant in what these these definitions mean, what these words mean, because we can talk past each other. I mean, I think think this is like a critical DEI lesson. If one person is saying equity and the other person is saying equality, one person wants to feel like a good person, the other one wants what's due to them on the basis of like a historical moral stance, then that conversation is going to be really challenging. You might feel like you've communicated, but if you don't have a shared language to talk about harm and repair and making good on these things, and that has to be supported by HR, that has to be supported by policies, then you know, it would be easy for one 
person in this conversation to feel like, wow, this company doesn't actually care about me and people who look like me. And the company said, I'm doing all I can and I've tried everything. I have, we have these inclusive policies, et cetera. And this person doesn't seem grateful for the work that we're doing. So if you don't have a shared language, you're going to talk past each other regardless of how much you care. That's the first thing uh, I would say. And I, I can't speak to the specifics of how this should map out to policy. But I, I think the invitation to get curious about what it is that people need, give people anonymous feedback channels to say, this thing is working for me, this thing is not. Uh, I think people trained to discuss things with care and sensitivity to be able to hold and receive uncomfortable things that people can share. Uh, I think some of the cultural aspects of uh, vulnerability that you're all inviting at 15.5 and just normalizing the things that we would normally talk about like work, I think that creates the conditions for the kind of discussions that I'm, I'm hearing in the question. But I would stop short of prescribing a solution because it, it gets into a lot of deeply personal things and, and structural supports that need to take place. So I don't want to be glib. I think one would need to be really thoughtful about how they would action that. I think it goes back again. How can we support not just our people as this vague kind of blanket, but how can we actually see people as the individuals that they are and right. the unique situations that they're coming from and actually come from a place of curiosity and support if they want it. And how but do we reward it when it. people do share? It can't be it can't be pull. And how do we, you know, when somebody does that, when somebody does the vulnerable thing of sharing, how do we reward that and protect them from blowback? I think that's a, a yeah, critical piece. That's actually that, great. Right. So Julie had another another question of how can managers expect marginalized folks to be fully engaged with a process that asks them to be even more vulnerable? I think fundamentally understanding that that dynamic exists is critical here. So uh, you can't fix everything and you can't you know, cross every divide. But I think you can understand that on the basis of certain structural disparities, requests are going to land for different people differently. And I think you can have uh, real conversations. So some of this maps to learning and development, like, you know, what does it look like to have a different identity, a different body, a different set of lived experiences? And, you know, how does that map on? to the discomfort that's required to engage with certain processes. Um, and, and again, when somebody does the challenging thing of making themselves more vulnerable, how can we acknowledge the essential humanity and courage and bravery required to do that? So I don't think you necessarily need to move heaven and earth. Not everybody you know, wants a handout or special treatment, but I think what we do want is an acknowledgement of the essential humanity that's brought to bear in these everyday exchanges. Willie, we're a bit over time, but... Thank you so much. What a powerful conversation. Oh, this is so fun. It would be great to do a part two. Uh, there's so much, but you know, I, I think that maybe we can each do a little closing round. But for me, it's like, it's been a journey to find my own sense of belonging in the world. And I know that when I have that sense of belonging in my life, things got better. I was able to actually start thinking in a more creative and expansive way. And I was able to envision a brighter future for myself. And That's so, and I think it's part of why I'm passionate about this is that it's like human beings are wired for belonging and we are in a crisis of belonging as a world. And that business gets to play a role, not just to make profit for our shareholders, but to actually move humanity forward. And that's a really exciting prospect to me. Beautifully said, Shane. I really love that. I think for me, what I'm um, what, what I'm sitting with and what I'm excited by is an opportunity to, you know, d despite 
the unfortunate circumstance that a lot of people are in, despite the pain and suffering and, you know, not just cosmetically, like people are, you know, dying and disproportionately impacted by these. I think this is an opportunity to connect more deeply with the people that we love, uh, the people that we know, to support people. I mean, my CEO today checked in with me and asked how I was doing in light of some um, some current headlines. Those things matter. So we don't necessarily need to go away to a Fort and Shinde Vipassana retreat. You probably should, but you don't necessarily have to do that to become a better person. You can ask somebody that you talk to every week how they're actually doing. So like we can, we can make these near and present opportunities more salient, and you don't have to go away and become a different person to do that. So good. Yeah. I think for me, you know, continuing to be on this inquiry of how do we create systems that create more belonging, more self-expression, having people experience the best of their potential and feel safe is ultimately what this is all about for me. So I'm so grateful to have this conversation with you, Willie. Shane and David, I really want to commend you for having me on here. This conversation could have gone any number of ways, but I I think it says a lot about your company and uh, you both as people to invite this kind of conversation. So uh, honored to be with you and um, so delighted to know you. We'll, We'll keep the conversation going. Where can people find more information on the Ready, Set, Skills workshop or anything else? You know, if they want to learn more about you and from you, where should we send them? Thanks for asking, David. TheReadySet.co is our company website. You can find all about our offerings there. And uh, just Google my name and you'll find me. W-I-L-L-I-E Jackson.com. Until next time. They weren't ready for that. (laughs) Bye, folks. Thanks, everybody. Thank you to our producer, Counterweight Creative. To our executive producer, David Misney, and guest coordinators, Sydney Lee and Suzanne Haight. One of the easiest things you can do to help us spread the message of being and becoming your best self at work is to write a review on Apple Podcasts, or just share this episode's link on your favorite social media channel. If you have any questions or comments, please email me and Shane at podcast at 15.5.com. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, thank you. Thank you.